Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Good morning and welcome to episode 23 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. And today I want to talk about something that is a little uncomfortable, but also really relevant and important because one way or another, what I'm about to name plays a pretty big role in our life and in our society. And it is something that can do tremendous harm if we're not able to name it and to see how it operates in our life. And that uncomfortable something is shame. And so this episode is part one of a two-part series on the topic of shame, what it is, what it looks like, how it shows up in our life, and how you and I can be resilient in the midst of our experience of shame. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, or you're becoming familiar with my theological voice as a preacher, teacher, and pastor, you know how much I love to talk about grace. I am all in on grace and forgiveness and their power to change our world. But the flip side of this emphasis on grace, which is in a sense a cure, the flip side of grace is to diagnose the practical problem or condition in our life that grace is uniquely positioned to heal. And one way of speaking about that problem is by using the word shame. Now, whenever I talk about hard things, I always like to cite my sources. And so for this week and next, I'll be working with two main sources. Number one, the Bible. And then number two, I'll be referencing the work of Brene Brown, who I've referenced frequently on this podcast. She's a shame researcher, a storyteller, and a PhD who's the author of Daring Greatly and a bunch of other great books on this topic. And so let's go ahead and start with Scripture. And what I'm about to read comes from Genesis chapter 3. And just to remind you of the backstory, if it's been a while since you've read the Genesis story, the Bible begins with God creating this beautiful garden, and then God creates human beings who bear God's image. God delights in these humans, and so he gives them some boundaries on how they're to live in the garden, the main one being, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, spoiler alert, if you have not read the book, they do. And immediately upon crossing this boundary, this is what the Bible says. A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Here ends the reading. 
So I love that question that God asks. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? That's the question we're going to lean into a little bit in this episode, but more on that in a bit. The first thing I want to say is how remarkable I think the beginning of this story is. We find Adam and Eve seeing their nakedness, finding a way to cover themselves up, being driven by fear, and then hiding from God and each other because they no longer want to be seen. And of course, this is just the beginning because if we keep reading, the free fall from God's garden continues and Adam and Eve start making excuses and blaming one another. Eve blames the snake, Adam blames Eve, and then Adam actually blames God. The whole thing spirals out of control, and if you read the Bible, the spiraling actually never stops. In other words, the fall is not a one-time event, but something that begins with Adam and Eve, but that in a sense continues to accelerate and pick up momentum even as the Old Testament comes to a close. And so what sparked this awful fall and what continuously fuels it? And the answer I'd have us consider today is shame. The intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of love and belonging or that there's something about us that makes us unworthy of connection. And as a result of this painful experience, we then put on a mask. And I don't mean the coronavirus kind of mask, but I mean some false image that we project outward. I'm talking about the way that we then lie and hide and cover our true self, all because we believe that if others really knew, that if they really knew what we've done or what we believe or how we feel or what we said or who we are, that if they saw our metaphorical nakedness and imperfection, that if others really knew, then the love and connection and belonging we crave and even need to survive, that it would all be taken away. This is our deepest and most primal fear. And it's at the heart of the biblical story from the very beginning. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, there is no shame. Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. But from chapter 3 on, shame is on every page. And the leper that keeps his distance from Jesus because he feels unclean. And the Samaritan woman who's had five husbands and is on the verge of marriage number six. And Peter, who in Luke chapter five screams, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. We may be conscious of it or not, but shame is there. It's in Scripture. It's in our world, in our lives, in our society, and the lives of the people that we as a church are called to serve. And the reason we're talking about shame today is simple. We either have a sense of what shame is and how it operates in our life, or shame operates our life. I'll say that again. We either have a sense of what shame is and how it operates in our life, or shame operates our life. Richard Rohr is an American author, a spiritual writer, a Franciscan friar, and the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation. 
in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And for much of his life, he worked with people in the New Mexico prison system, people incarcerated for committing a crime. And then from there, he's gone on to do spiritual direction with all sorts and conditions of people, rich and poor, young and old, black and white. And he was asked to find a common thread about what he thought binds us all together in our diversity. And this is what he said, and I quote, We live in a time of primal shame, and we don't seem to know how to escape it. I find very few people who don't feel stupid, inadequate, dirty, or unwanted today, even if they do not consciously admit it. When people come to me for counseling or confession, they ask, in one form or another, if people knew the things I think, the things I've said, the things I want to do, who would love me? We have all had feelings of radical, foundational unworthiness. I'm sure they take 10,000 different forms, but the shame is usually there, end quote. So here's what I want to do with the time we have left for this episode. I want to look at two things. Number one, what shame is and what it's not. And number two, how it is that the gospel heals our shame. And then next week, after doing a little recap of the main ideas, we'll talk about what it is that we then need to do to be resilient in the midst of feeling shame. And so to start, what is shame? Shame can be defined as the intensely painful feeling that we are unworthy of belonging or connection, that there is something wrong with me as is, that then makes me want to scramble to present a self or an image that isn't just a lie, but a lie I assume that's better and more acceptable than who I think I really am. And of course, the emotional and psychological cost that comes when such a dance runs our life is great. It is exhausting to always be pretending, hiding, defending, fighting. It leaves no room for creativity and play. But when it comes to shame, we all have it. In fact, the only people that do not feel shame are sociopaths, people who don't have a capacity for empathy and connection. But If you have a capacity for connection, the deep fear of disconnection will always be present in your life, lurking in the background. And because we are hardwired for connection, it only makes sense that we're going to panic if we believe that there is something about us that makes us unworthy of that connection we need. And essentially, shame needs three things to grow secrecy, silence, and judgment. I call it the unholy trinity. These are the three things that exasperate shame and make it a lot worse. Not some of the time, but 100% of the time. And to be very clear, shame is not the same thing as guilt, right? Guilt is a focus on our behavior, but shame is a focus on self. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says I made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. And so, for instance, a few years ago, I was part of a program called Revision, where we would mentor at-risk youth, people who were in jail but had not yet been tried as adults. And 
the last person I mentored before moving to Austin was incarcerated for armed robbery and theft. He stole a car and he robbed someone at gunpoint. And I remember talking to him and hearing his response. But a response motivated by guilt would sound something like this. What I did was really stupid, and I'm paying the price for that mistake. This action was wrong. I hurt someone. I scared them. And those things don't mesh with who I know I can be. I feel awful about what I did. That's guilt. If someone is ashamed of who they are and they commit the same crime, not only will they not say those things, but they probably won't say anything at all because, again, there's a lot of secrecy and silence and judgment happening on the inside but also happening on the outside as well in the form of judges and parole officers and attorneys. And so they're likely to be very silent. But if they do talk about what they did, they'll say things like, I'm a screw-up, I'm an idiot, that's just the way I am. So why does this matter? In other words, shame, guilt, isn't this just a matter of semantics? Why all the fuss about differentiating between the two? And here's why. Shame is positively correlated with violence, addiction, suicide, violence, eating disorders, aggression, and just about every other societal disease that we as the body of Christ are asked to both diagnose and heal. In other words, shame is an enemy to working for justice. It is a cancer that fuels injustice. Guilt, on the other hand, is inversely correlated with those very same outcomes, inversely correlated with violence, inversely correlated with addiction, inversely correlated with aggression. In other words, the capacity to separate who we are or our sense of worth as a divine image bearer the capacity to separate who we are from what we do or what happens to us or what people say about us, the capacity to separate those things out in our own life and to help other people do the same, this capacity is at the heart of what it means to be a conduit through whom God brings healing and hope and restoration to the world. And so here is the idea I'm working with today that if we're going to be doing the work God has given us to do, that if we're going to be courageous and learn to take risks, that as a community and as individuals, we need a way of setting aside our shame and to accept and embrace that God delights in us as is. And, you know, hey, I'm all for self-help material and good psychology. I've learned a lot from both, but it's also really important for me to say that I'm really talking about neither. And so just consider a few of the many Bible verses that support this truth. From 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one already approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives inside of me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I originally had like 48 Bible verses, and lucky for you, I edited them all out just to keep this a little bit shorter. But the Bible, it has this funny and life-changing idea, an idea that runs completely counter to the message we inherit from our world, which is that God loves us and that God cherishes us, not in spite of whatever it is that causes us shame, but rather in and through them, that we are already approved and that we don't need to be ashamed and that transformation happens as we present ourselves to God and to each other as a people who know, not in our head, but in our heart, how deeply loved by God we already are. And as you know, people are desperate for that unconditional blessing. You are, your family is, I am, and the people that St. Michael serves are desperate, desperate for a flesh and blood person, someone like you, someone like me, to reflect back to them their own inherent worth and sense of dignity. Because I, I think about God's question to Adam and Eve, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that? And the answer is, not God. It's always someone else. It's the world, an advertisement, a peer, a parent, a boss. It is never God who tells us we lack something. No, God always says, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are my beloved. I am pleased to clothe you in my righteousness. You are not naked. You are lacking in nothing. And so where in your life do you feel unworthy of connection? You are not alone. It's a universal human experience. And the antidote is to name it and to be part of a community that values grace and truth. Now, we're going to lean more into that concept next week. But for now, let me just leave you with some comfortable words from the Gospel of Luke. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom.